Well, good morning, Project Church. Uh, It's a pleasure to once again come and open God's Word with you. Uh, Today, we'll be wrapping up our Anchored series, which has been an absolute joy to teach. Uh, So far, we've looked at the doctrine of Scripture. We've looked at the doctrine of immutability, that is, that God is unchanging. We've looked at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And then this morning, we're going to look at something just a little bit different, the doctrine of the church. Uh, So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading verses 13 through 20. Uh, We'll be spending our time this morning in verses 18 and 19 mostly, but I'm going to read from verse 13 for some context. This is what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Australia just lost the Test Series uh, to India. Uh, If you were watching, you'll know that their greatest triumph was earlier this week at the Gabba. I can see we have someone who was very keen in that victory over on the side, Anya Anish. Uh, Australia don't lose too many matches at the Gabba. It's been something of a fortress for us, but earlier this week, Australia lost at the Gabba. And though there were many significant contributors over the summer, uh, plenty of people on the Indian cricket team who gave Justin Langer a headache, there is one name that haunted us all summer long, Chitezwa Pajara. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with this name, Chitezwa Pajara is an Indian batsman who can rightly be described as a wall. Okay? It doesn't matter how fast or how clever or how aggressively you bowl to this guy, you just can't get the guy out. In fact, early this week in an innings that was crucial to India's victory, Pajara was struck by balls coming in excess of 140 k's an hour 11 times by the Australian bowlers. They hit him on the ribs, they hit him on the elbow, and on three occasions he was struck in the head. But you just can't get the guy out. And the memes have been circulating all over the Twitter sphere and Facebook this week. The people are saying he should be sponsored by a cement truck. Other people are saying he's like the Terminator because you can't get rid of him. Um, there's been a lot of things said about Pajara this week. You see, no matter what attack this man comes under, he always manages to stand. He gets knocked down, but he gets up again, and you're never going to keep him down, as the old pub song says. And it's no secret that in the 21st century Western world, the church of Jesus Christ is also under attack. It's under attack from the outside, and sadly, it's also under attack from within. From the outside, we're accused of being judgmental, hypocritical, homophobic bigots who need to stop telling everybody how to live their lives, and that we should really keep our noses out of the political sphere. We're being attacked from the outside. But then from the inside, we have wolves in sheep's clothing leading people astray with false teaching, teaching which tickles the ear but never really confronts the heart. Churches are often so busy trying to attract the world, they've forgotten our mandate to conduct ourselves in a manner distinct from the world. But that's just in the West. In the East, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are imprisoned, tortured, and even butchered 
for their faith. The church of Jesus Christ is under attack. And as we watch this assault on the church manifest in front of us and we watch Christendom just fade into the background as secularism rises, it can lead us into a position of feeling quite unsteady. We begin to think that somehow amidst all of this ostracism and persecution and slandering that the church may not survive its current episode and it will soon become just a relic of the past. It can be quite discouraging for us. But embedded in this small discourse in our passage today between Jesus and the Apostle Peter in Matthew 16, there is a bold declaration and a sure promise that no matter what gets thrown at the church of Jesus Christ, it will stand. Abi Kuyper put it this way. It should be on screen. In outward appearance, the church of Christ is far less glorious than are most dominions of the world. Nevertheless... In all essential respects, the church is incomparably more glorious. One of those respects is the matter of durability. Earthly kingdoms come and go. Some of the greatest and mightiest world empires vanished very quickly after their founding. But the church continues from age to age and will outlast the ages. The Christian church is indestructible. So what I want to do this morning is pick things up in verse 18 so that we might learn some more about this indestructible church that our Lord Jesus is building. Let's read verse 18 again. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what we have before us is actually one of the most debated passages in the history of the church. There's been a lot of ink spilt on just this one verse. You see, when it comes to interpreting this verse, the question that lays before us is this, who or what is this rock that Jesus is referring to, right? Now, the church in Rome has long held that the rock here is the Apostle Peter. Uh, The Greek word uh, for rock is Petra, which sounds very similar uh, to Peter's name, Petros. You you could read it, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church, right? And in their tradition, Peter is considered to be the first pope, and that Jesus building his his church has been a progressive 2,000-year-long succession plan from the Apostle Peter all the way to the modern-day pope. That's how they would interpret this particular verse. In other words, this verse is a proof text uh, for justifying the concept of the papacy. Now, as a result of some, I think, reasonable exegesis, but I think mostly something of a knee-jerk reaction, I think Protestants have read this interpretation and some of the papal implications that follow it, and they've sought to find another meaning in the text. And some have said, well, no, the, the rock is actually Christ himself. And they'll often cite verses to the tune of Christ is our cornerstone to to justify that particular position. Others have said that, no, the rock is actually Peter's confession that he's just made. Jesus is the son of the living God, and on that confession I will build my church. And various combinations of these have been proposed. And listen, I think they're all pretty sound interpretations. I don't think anyone's being exegetically silly. Um, I think there could be far more charity amongst commentators on this issue, let me tell you. But for me personally, I think that the plainest meaning of the text is actually right there in front of us. I think the rock is in fact Peter. As Leon Morris puts it, Peter's just made a significant statement about Jesus and now Jesus is going to make a significant statement about Peter. But although I think Peter is the rock, I don't believe he's the rock in such a way as to validate the papacy or some other model of church governance, but 
I have to acknowledge that when the early church began, that early church that we read about in the book of Acts, if you're asking the question, who's on center stage in, in, in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts? Who's in the spotlight? Other than the Holy Spirit, it's the apostle Peter. Remember, it was Peter who oversaw the appointment of Matthias to be the next apostle. It was Peter who preached the sermon at Pentecost that led to the conversion of 3,000 people. Peter also appears to be some kind of first amongst equals lead pastor in the church at Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 5, it was Peter who pronounced judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. You see, the role that Peter played in the early church cannot be understated. He truly was the rock on which Jesus built the church. Perhaps we could translate it like this. Peter is the rock on which Jesus began the church, is how I would understand that. But concurrently, I would, I would temper everything I just said with the following observations. Number one, Peter was just one of 12 apostles. Okay? There's nothing to say that Peter was the chairman of the board. We need to keep passages like Ephesians 2 in mind. It should be on screen. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here's the kicker. Built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, all 12 of them, and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. The second thing we need to observe is that James actually eventually overtook Peter's role in the church in Jerusalem. And at different times, Peter was actually sent by the church and didn't have absolute autonomy. And then thirdly, we read in Galatians that Peter was actually rightly and publicly rebuked by the apostle Paul for siding with the Judaizers. And um, if you want to try and argue that Peter was the bishop of Rome for about 20 to 25 years, historically it actually doesn't quite line up. Peter's ministry is actually far more mobile and itinerant. Uh, The idea that he spent 20 to 25 years stationary in Rome I don't think reflects the historical Peter. So in the JSV, the uh, JDOS standard version, I think the rock is Peter. But now that we know who the rock is, what does Jesus say next? He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, in the military of every nation in the world, soldiers are issued with a standard issue weapon. Uh, In the Australian Army, I believe uh, the the weapon they get issued is an F-88 Austere rifle. That's the standard issue weapon for an Australian soldier. But I don't believe there's any nation in the world who offers their soldiers a gate. I don't think that's the standard issue weapon of too many soldiers, okay? It's been a common observation of this particular verse that Jesus doesn't say the long-range cannons or rocket launchers of hell shall not prevail. He says the gates of hell shall not prevail. Gates aren't an offensive weapon. Don't see too many gates in the hands of soldiers, right? Gates are a defensive mechanism. And some people have observed this passage and said, well, it's like... What he's describing here is the advancement of the church. It's sort of like a gate-storming attack against hell, and the church is 100% on the offensive, and hell is utterly defenseless to this onslaught. And look, I think there's some valid observations to that view, but I'd add a little bit more, because I don't think the imagery here is one of hell hiding behind a white picket fence. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. You see, in the first century, gates were part of really strong fortifications that would protect cities, and they were often bordered by bastions so that you could fire attacks at your oncoming, on, oncoming enemy from the wall. Uh, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, think Minas Tirith, Helm's Deep, or the Black Gate of Mordor. This is the kind of gate that Jesus would have in mind. 
And Jesus mentions one specific gate, the gate that probably had the reputation of being particularly strong, if not the most strong, the gate of hell. In Greek, it's the word Hades, which just means the place of the dead. You can read about it in Luke 16. And Jesus says this fortified gate, this gate that marks the entrance to the place of the dead, despite the many attempts of the enemy to vanquish the church, they will all ultimately fail. And this is something we need to have anchored in our soul because throughout her history, there have been seasons when it's looked like the church has failed, like the gates of hell have prevailed. As early as Acts chapter 8, we read that a great persecution arose in the church of Jerusalem and all the Christians were scattered abroad. In Revelation chapter 2, we read of a faithful pastor named Antipas who refused to participate in the imperial cult of Rome and he was roasted to death in a torture device known as a brazen bull. Under the persecution of Nero, many Christians were thrown to the lion. Some were crucified like their Lord before them, and then others were covered in pitch and used as human torches to illuminate his imperial gardens. With the rise of communism in China, we've seen that Western missionaries have been stripped out of that nation, and it seems as though all of their evangelistic endeavours have been a waste of time. It can look like the church has been prevailed over. But guess what? When the church in Jerusalem was scattered, they were scattered to places like Samaria and Judea so that the gospel message could spread even further. And though many Christians lost their lives under Nero, those Christians are now reigning with Christ as the church triumphant and the second death will have no power over them. And although Western missionaries have been stripped out of communist China, the the population of Christians in China today is probably somewhere in the order of 80 million people, more than any other nation on the planet. You see, the gates of hell will not prevail over the church, though it may look like they do from time to time. And you see, sometimes we can buy into the lie that Christianity is just some static, acceptable religious cup of tea for white Westerners. But it couldn't be further from the truth. Look how Bruce Bruce Shelley puts it in his uh, book, Church History in Plain Language. He said, At the beginning of the 21st century, more Christians worshipped in Anglican churches in Nigeria each week than in all the Episcopal and Anglican churches of Britain, Europe and North America combined. There were ten times more Assemblies of God members in Latin America than in the United States. There were more Baptists in Congo than in Great Britain. And there were more people in church every Sunday in communist China than in all of Western Europe. For nearly 2,000 years now, Jesus has been building his church. And we're a part of that. It began in Jerusalem and somehow it got to Toowoomba. I have no idea how. Probably on convict ships, but it got here, right? Now, some have gotten a little bit fanatical with this verse and no no doubt out of love and raw passion. And they've naively applied it just to their own local congregation and despite the fact that membership is significantly down and the the books aren't balancing and it looks like the church might have to fold or amalgamate, they they hang on and say, no, 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 the Lord will build his church. Look, it's true. Local congregations will taste the truth of this promise from time to time. We've seen a good dose of it at the project over the last six months. But this is first and foremost a global promise that whilst we await the return of Jesus Christ, Jesus will ensure that his people have an expression somewhere. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, I love the Project Church. But Jesus building his church is not contingent upon one particular congregation. The kingdom of God is much bigger than that. It's not contingent on one particular denomination either. He will build in, it in history however he pleases. <laughs> I stumbled upon uh, this poem that described it well this week. It says, Oh, where are kings and empires now of old that went and came? But Lord, thy church is praying yet a thousand years the same. Unshaken as eternal hills, immovable she stands, a mountain that shall fill the earth, a house not made by hands. So why is it that Jesus has been so insistent to build and preserve his church in history? Let's have a look at verse 19. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus says to Peter he's going to hand him a set of keys. But notice it's plural. It's not key. It's keys. And with these keys, he will have the power to bind and loosen certain things, right? But the question is, what exactly are these keys and what exactly will Peter be binding and loosening? Well, if you're like me and you grew up Pentecostal, it's tempting to think that what Jesus is talking about here is binding and casting out demons. That's how I understood this passage growing up. We read in Matthew 12 that it was Jesus who bound the strong man, Satan. And so in like manner, we get to bind demons and cast out demons. Listen, I think that's true. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, and we do have authority in Christ's name to cast out the demonic. But that's not what this text is saying. Most scholars would say, and I tend to agree, that having the keys of the kingdom speaks to this idea that the apostles were given the task of preaching the gospel to the nations. Okay, In, in order for Jesus to build his church... He commissions his disciples to preach the gospel, which is the gospel of the kingdom, and by so doing allows people entrance into that kingdom. Okay, How do you get into the kingdom? Well, like all doors, you need a key. And the key is believing the gospel. But then remember, it's not key, it's keys. It's plural. So what other function do these keys have? Well, from the immediate context alone, it's actually quite difficult for us to figure out what exactly these keys do. The text doesn't say. But we're in luck. Two chapters later, in Matthew 18, that same phrase about binding and loosening appears again, which gives us a little bit more context. Let's read it. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. This is the other half, the other function of the keys of the kingdom. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Notice that. The purpose of this process is to gain your brother. This is always about restoration when we're doing this. Let's continue. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And he, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Here's the kicker. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same phrase. 
And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So in figuring out this second function of the keys of the kingdom, if we harmonize Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, we recognize that having the keys of the kingdom is a two-sided coin. It's firstly bound up with the authority to grant, grant entrance into the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel. But secondly, it's concerned with regulating the conduct of those who are already in the kingdom. In short, the keys of the kingdom are bound up with this idea of church discipline. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning, right? You see, Matthew 18 is an instruction manual on how we, even in the 21st century local church, are to help regulate one another's conduct. You see, although Jesus first spoke these words to Peter in the first generation of Christians, and although he and the fellow, his fellow apostles were the first to use these keys, these same keys are for our use today. Okay, So we're not to think of the apostle Peter standing at the pearly white gates with the keys of the kingdom wrapped around his waist. This is something that we're to use. Binding and loosening is something we do. Now, truth be told, as you follow Matthew 18, it, it doesn't take a lot of explaining. I'm not saying it makes you jump for joy, but it's, it's pretty straightforward. If someone sins against you, you tell them. And if they don't listen, go grab two or three witnesses to help you with that. And if they still don't listen, tell the church. And then if they still don't listen, effectively, excommunicate them from the church. Now that sounds intense, but the Apostle Paul did that in the church in Corinth. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2. This is something Paul actually had to do. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, or you not rather to mourn? Here's the key. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, we might read that and think, man, that's pretty intense, right? I mean, and at the end of the day, who gives Paul the right to, to make judgments like that? Surely he's operating outside of his jurisdiction, right? Isn't judgment for God alone? Well, no. Both Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 say that whatever you bind on earth, that is, whatever behavior you don't permit in the local church and enact discipline on, that kind of binding, so long as it's in alignment with the word of God, it will be bound in heaven, that is to say, it will have heavenly sanction. Suppose, for example, hypothetically, hypothetically we had a, an unruly member here at the project, all right? someone who refused to listen to the gentle rebuke of his brothers and sisters in Christ and who subsequently refused to respond to the rebuke of the elders in the church and we decided collectively to kick them out of the church, you need to know that if we did so for reasons justified by the word of God, that wouldn't be a mere earthly phenomenon. It wouldn't just be the conclusion of the local church eldership, but whatever verdict was delivered physically, God would get to work on spiritually. Jesus would be sanctioning the removal of that individual from the church. And now, if that person genuinely repented and we loosened them on earth, okay, welcomed them back into the church, there would be a concurrent heavenly loosening okay we have heaven's playbook and concerning matters of discipline if we play by that book heaven has our back 
Now, this is heavy stuff. I, I know that. But this is stuff that has been abused throughout church history. There have been times in the history of the church when it has basically injected steroids into this verse, assumed too much power, and manipulated people. Well, we've got the keys of salvation, the keys of the kingdom. Outside of us, there is no salvation. And it becomes a little bit of a power trip. Forgetting that, those keys are only effective to the degree that they are in alignment with the word of God. The Bible is our ultimate authority, not the church. I'd invite you to listen to our first sermon in this series where I tease that out a little bit. So when Jesus says to Peter, here are the keys of the kingdom, he is issuing him a twofold responsibility, right? A responsibility that then falls to us. It's a life and death, soul-securing responsibility that calls God's people to himself through the preaching of the gospel and when they've responded to that call, implementing the necessary systems and structures to ensure God's people look out for one another. That's what the keys of the kingdom are. Now look, it's true, God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. You can read about legitimate modern day testimonies of people who have had Jesus appear to them in their sleep and it leads to their conversion. That stuff happens a fair bit in the Middle East. But that's not the normative means of God drawing people to himself. The Lord is building his church and the normative means of God rescuing and preserving his people is via the preaching of the gospel and belonging to a local church where God's people can look out for one another. Those are the keys of the kingdom. The promise to build his church is a global promise fulfilled through local means. But sadly, this idea of belonging to a local church is a concept that in our day has been labelled as manipulative religiosity, right? I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I love Jesus, I just hate his bride. These are the war cries of those who espouse this view. I've quoted this before, but Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, There is a growing movement among self-proclaimed evangelicals and in a broader culture to get spirituality without religion, to find a relationship without rules, and have God without the church. More and more people are looking for a decorpulated Christianity. Um, to explain that word, if decapitation is removal of the head, decorpulation would be removal of the body, removing the body of Christ from their lives. But the simple truth of the matter is this the New Testament knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. Because of the saving work of Jesus on the cross, not only have we been cleansed of our sins and justified before Almighty God, we've also been adopted into the family of God. And being adopted into the family of God is not just supposed to be a pretty scriptural word picture to to, um, describe our salvation, but we are called right now, this side of eternity, to begin living out our adoption in the local church, being part of that family now. And it's not that we need each other just so that we can enact church discipline on each other and do Matthew 18 all the time, okay? It includes that from time to time. But it's so much more than that. (laughs) Thank goodness. Look at Hebrews 10, for example. This is what the author of Hebrews says to us. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A similar idea comes out in 1 Corinthians 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Yes, the church is the people of God. It is an organism. But it is also an organization. Listen, as we wrap up this series today, my hope and prayer is that as we enter into 2021, we would be a people who are anchored in Scripture, a people who are anchored in the knowledge that God does not change, a people who have assurance of their salvation, and people who enthusiastically belong to and participate in the local church. Oh, what God could get up to amongst the people like that.